I'm so excited to introduce you guys to Howl FM, the best and most convenient way to listen to all the episodes of Reading Aloud. On the web at howl.fm and on the go with the Howl app. Yeah, you can stream and download all Reading Aloud episodes that have been released in the past six months and go beyond the audio with behind-the-scenes photos, commentaries, and more. But there's a way to go further. Yes, you can go deeper by upgrading to Howl Premium for only $4.99 a month. You get exclusive access to the entire Reading Aloud archive and to all the Earwolf and Wolf Pop archives. This includes all episodes older than six months, all remastered with zero ads. That's right. No ads. Only with Howl Premium, listen to hundreds of hours of the WTF podcast with Mark Marin, classic interviews in there, Robin Williams, Louis C.K., and more. Howl has also partnered with some of your favorite hosts and comedians to develop Howl Originals, brand new shows available only with Howl Premium. Check out the great new series from Lauren Lapkus and the AV Club right now. Already, there are 10 brand new hilarious Howl Originals, and we're adding new shows every week. Get access to all this exclusive content, both on your phone and on your desktop, with Howl Premium for only $4.99 per month. And with the promo code READING, you get a full month of a free trial. Just go to howl.fm and enter code READING at checkout. Remember, you can use Howl on your phone or your computer, but you can only use my promo code on howl.fm. That's the website. So go to howl.fm, that's H-O-W-L dot F-M, and use the promo code READING for one free trial of Howl Premium. Today's sponsor is Loot Crate. For less than 20 bucks a month, Loot Crate gives the geek in you a special treat every month. Loot Crate is a subscription box service with 40 bucks worth of geek, gamer, and pop culture gear, collectibles, apparel, comics, all delivered straight to your mailbox every month. This month, they're celebrating all the monsters you can fit in your pocket and the ones you need some crazy circle drawing skills to bring to the mortal realm. This month's crate features an exclusive collectible they're told is the most important object in pretty much the whole universe, plus awesome items from Blizzard, Kid Robot, and more. You have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe, and you receive that month's crate, but once you pass the cutoff... You're screwed. So you have to get in before 9 p.m. Pacific on the 19th. So go to lootcrate.com slash Nate and enter code Nate to save three bucks on your new subscription today. Let's do the show. to start your podcast. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, my name's Nate Cordry. I'm the host of Reading Aloud. That's what you're listening to right now. I'm so pleased that you're here with me today, and we have a really exciting episode. John Ross Bowie starts us off with an incredible reading of one of my favorite pieces I've ever read. I found it on The Concourse, which is like a, uh, I think it's like a music blog, <clears throat> and it is so great. It has 482,000 likes on it. It's, uh, it's gotten a lot. You probably have heard of it, actually. That's almost half a million people who've loved this thing. So you might have already caught wind of it. If not, you're in for a treat. And then we have a great interview with Amy Nicholson, who's part of the Wolf Pop family. She's the chief uh, film critic for the LA Weekly. We talk about the book she wrote about Tom Cruise and about movies and film. It's a great conversation. But before we get to those two fun pieces of reading aloud content, I have some updates. One, the live show in September, the cast for the show is insane. It's just spectacular. We have John Cryer, Stephen Weber, Matt Jones, uh, Tim Simons, all these people are part of the Reading Aloud family. They've read on here. I interviewed John about the book that he wrote. Um, Allison Agosti is coming in. Mike Freeman. It's just a jam-packed live show. This is Sunday, September 13th, 7.30 p.m. 
at the UCB Theater on Franklin in Los Angeles. Uh, you can get tickets. They're only $5. You go to the UCB uh, Theater website. So you go to franklin.ucbtheater.com, franklin.ucbtheater.com. Click on the schedule and reserve your tickets for the Sunday, September 13th show. Uh, Jerry Stahl is also going to be reading uh, from, it's the 20th anniversary of Permanent Midnight, and he's coming in and reading an excerpt. It's going to be a crazy show, and I'm so excited to host it. It's been a couple months, so it's going to be real fun. So come down and check that out. Also, two uh, book club updates. All the Light We Cannot See is the current choice for the book club. It's fantastic. It is so good. It's like this enormous, beautiful fairy tale. I'm having a blast reading it. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. So you have two weeks to get on board. So plenty of time. All the Light We Cannot See. It won the Pulitzer Prize last year. It's very rich. It's really fun. Get it, read it, and then email us your thoughts at readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. And share your thoughts with us about the book. Tell us what you liked and what you didn't like. And we'll read your comments on the air so you can interact with the book club. And we have a great group of people coming in for this book club. Um, And then uh, I've already chosen the October book because I'm a Jonathan Franzen psycho. Purity, Jonathan Franzen's newest novel, is the next book club for October. So if you want to get an early start, because it's like 600 pages long. If you want to get an early start, it just came out. So go to your local bookstore and pick up Purity by Jonathan Franzen. And maybe I'll see you at his live event on Saturday, September 12th. He's reading from Purity and taking questions, which should be hilarious because he's a big kooky weirdo. Uh, Through Skylight Books, the bookstore that I love and adore, in Los Feliz, they're hosting an event, and you can get tickets through the Skylight Books website. That's Saturday, September 12th, Jonathan Franzen, live in Los Angeles. Come check that out. I think we've covered it all. Now let's get to some hilarious jokes with the great John Ross Bowie. Hey, John Bowie. Hey. Uh, hey, Nate Hey, man. Um, <laughs> John texted me uh, like a week or so ago and said, I must, I have to read this on your show. And Which I've never done before. No, you had never done that before. Uh, boy, are you correct. Oh, good. This is so much fun. It is so, so fun. It's, this guy, uh, tell me this guy's name. Has a point of view. His Al- name is Albert Bruneco. I think it's Bruneco. It might be Bruneco. Yeah. Um, writes for the Concourse, which is a uh, a music blog, and um, he wrote uh, a piece which um, was shared with me on social media, and I in turn shared it on social media, and got some blowback. From who? Got some blowback from uh, a broad range of people, some of whom were like, how dare you diss Bono, or fuck Bono, but he's an easy target. Um yeah, There's another a- rock icon who is uh, who is rather deeply criticized in here. Oh yeah, and uh, and he's kind of a sacred cow, although nothing is inaccurate in what yeah. is said here. Yeah, um, it's a very well written, if controversial, piece. Yeah, I, 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 he is an easy target, but the writer doesn't rely on the large targets. He finds the smallest of targets and then and puts a magnifying glass into those and say, "Isn't this fucking insane? This right. behavior?" Um, and he's able to tie a bunch of different things together, and it's. It's super short too. Like it's there's no fat on this. It's a lean, yeah. mean execution. And it, yeah, yeah, and it doesn't stop. Like there's no fucking. I did. I was going the whole time. I was like, oh, this is, the, the foot is still on the gas. We are still plowing through. Yeah. It was so much fun. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it's really interesting because you know the 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 target is something we, that has been discussed at length. Bono has been uh, a, a bona fide rock star for 30 some odd years at this point, 35 years really, if you go from uh, the first record. Yeah. And um, 
I mean, for God's sake, his name, his, the full name on the first record, he lists himself as Bono Vox, which is Latin for good voice. Fuck you. Right out of the gate. Holy Right out wow. of the gate. I did that's not, not that. in the piece here, but that's <laughs> that's something that I've always known about Bono that has always kept me from being, sure. and I, I, I'm not a U2 hater, but it's always kept me from being a real diehard fan yeah. that this guy decided that the Latin for good voice <laughs> was going to be his handle. <laughs> yeah. So, but to see it, to see like the pomposity dissected yeah. this way. When did the when when did the tide really turn for the average consumer? Because I like I listened to them and sure. I Octune Baby. I fucking listened to that a ton in 1993. That's 91. 91. It, you know, um, I, I think Octung Baby was was a big uh, a big shift because they they that yeah. was when they got dancey. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was when they um, that was when he. I don't think that's Zoo TV yet, right? But it's still like big media spectacle. I think that is. Uh, might be Zoo TV. Is it? I think Zoo TV. That was an album, wasn't it? After that. Yeah, you're probably right. But, but I think the they started to get into, like the tour the of fucking... like the media is the message and all yeah. this like overblown Marshall McLuhan shit going on yeah. uh, at sports stadiums. And, this and he was had a, a remote control with him, changing the channel, watching, you know, while the, they were performing that old fucking, yeah, yeah. nonsense. Yeah, there was, a, there was a, a, a sense of theatricality that the band took on at that point. That maybe they didn't deserve, that maybe the sound didn't deserve. Yes, that and, um, you know, whatever you say about those early U2 records, there's a spareness to them. Yes. You know, it's guitar, bass, and drums, and and. Maybe a little bit of strings in the background, but they're just they're they're real quiet little. Not to get too into Adam Scott and Scott Aukerman's uh, field here, but these I'd are not. these are quiet little you know, straight ahead rock and roll records. And then Octung Baby is so big, yeah, and and everything gets so enormous and yeah. and 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 sort of campy, but it's you too, so they're still taking themselves seriously, right, right. Uh, I, you know, I feel like there's nothing we can say that isn't going to be said better in a couple minutes. No, I, I really appreciate you bringing this to me. It's a fucking perfect fit for this show, and I laughed my ass off when I read it, so I'm really excited for you to read it. So, uh, yeah, so give it, a, give it a whirl. Truly, I say to you today that Bono is an asswipe. At the intersection of all the annoying things a rock star can be, messianic, pretentious, vapid, dumb, old, creatively bankrupt, grandiose, utterly bereft of self-awareness, calcified into a grotesque, oily wire rack in the grocery store knockoff of himself, part of you too, etc. There sits Bono in his stupid housefly glasses playing with his dick. He is, in the words of Deadspin's own Tim Marchman, the worst music man of all time. He is puke and I want to punch him in the ear. Here is a sentence. This past Wednesday, Bono spoke at an Amnesty International ceremony at Ellis Island celebrating the 40th anniversary of John Lennon receiving his green card. Here is another sentence. John Lennon did not immigrate to the United States through Ellis Island. Amnesty International had nothing to do with his immigration to the United States, and Bono never knew him. Nevertheless, a tapestry was unfurled, depicting with metaphoric incoherence Manhattan as a Lennon-piloted yellow submarine shining its light on Liberty Island, which is not Ellis Island. Bono spoke and claimed Lennon and the Beatles as Irishmen, because Lennon's derelict father may or may not have been descended from the Irish, and for the more important reason that nothing in American culture is better public relations than making a too big deal of flimsy, possibly spurious, Irish heritage. To be honest, I don't care much about which part of the British Isles rightly may claim John Lennon's ancestry. He mostly was a self-promoting misogynist checkbook activist who imagined no possessions from one of the most exclusive addresses in the history of planet Earth, so whichever country wants him can have him. This is beside the point, which is that Bono sucks. Probably this is the first time Bono has ever publicly baptized a lawn-dead wife-beater into post-mortem Irishness at Ellis Island, but honestly, I wouldn't know because I mostly ignore his activities in his role as the living incarnation of thirst. Mostly this is just the convenient and conveniently ridiculous news peg I am using as an excuse to point out that he is an annoying doofus who has been peddling emptily profoundish, nauseatingly wholesome, sexless Disney World theme music to milk toast nice bros for longer than I have been alive, and I wish he would quit it. There are three U2 songs. 
The first one is the Upworthy Anthem. It begins on some peppy, mid-tempo bullshit, rendered with tremendous precision and enthusiasm, in which Bono intones at you, it's always you, because the adult contempt pope needs not his own benedictions, you see, in his solemn verse voice about how you just don't know how you're going to make it. You just can't give any more. And man, I've been there too, buddy. Sometimes you just don't know how you're going to make it, man. And then shit kicks up a notch and a chord. And oh shit, man, what happened next will restore your faith in humanity. And suddenly Bono's wailing at you about how, but then you give it all you got and you break through. Ah, yeah, you break through. And the Edge is also doing the wailing with his guitar and everything is very stirring and cathartic. And you're wailing along in your... Camry, yeah, man, this guy gets it, how a man's heart aches until he breaks through. Dorks and full-body leotards dunk off trampolines to this song during timeouts of NBA games. The second U2 song is the one where Bono busts out the incongruous and skin-crawling sex whisper to tell you that he's more upset about the Johnstown flood than you are. The third one is the one where he's sad that he got friend-zoned despite being sensitive and caring about Africa. Repetitiveness generally isn't all that grave a crime in pop music. For example, literally every song the Red Hot Chili Peppers have ever recorded is just Anthony Kiedis saying Lama Gamma Busy Hella Fizzy California over the opening credits music from The Cosby Show, and they've been doing it for over 30 years, and nobody cares. This is because the Red Hot Chili Peppers are just some goofballs turning the crank and hoping it'll spit out another under the bridge, and they know it as well as we do, and hey, the world is full of people turning cranks. Much of life is crank turning. Nobody can get mad at the Red Hot Chili Peppers. It would be like getting mad at a fry cook because his quarter pounders always taste the same. The problem with you 2 with Bono, really, I mean, come on, who the fuck are the rest of them anyway, is not that their shit is repetitive, but what they are repeating, neutered, khaki, wussbag crap designed to make you proud of yourself for being capable of feelings, and how they are repeating it with the pomp, grandiosity, and embarrassing self-seriousness of a 14-year-old Redditor telling you he doesn't see race, man and to whom they are repeating it, shit dick Red Sox stands. U2 is the world's foremost creator of oh man, so deep faces, furrowed brow, closed eyes, overbite, on dudes who tuck in their t-shirts. My theory is Bono starts with the face and works backward. Imagine how he was grooving. Imagine the oh man, so deep face he was working when he wrote this heap of generic feeling-y nonsense which has been playing on a loop in every books a million on earth for 15 straight years. What is this song about? What specific emotion does it evoke? What life circumstance does it explore? The answer to all of these is wet bread. The answer to every U2 question is wet bread. They are stuck in the wet bread moment, and they can't get out of it. No one thing encapsulates the Bono experience better than the fact that U2's last album, Songs of Innocence, barf, was released in the form of malware, forcibly uploaded to every goddamn iTunes account in the world. The megalomania and cluelessness and howling bottomless smarm... Here, jaded inhabitants of the post-industrial world, I, the Bono, bestow upon you the gift of free U2 music you didn't even know you wanted. The blinkered certainty that the world wants what he wants to give it. The simultaneously earnest, songs of innocence, and hilariously passive-aggressive, songs of innocence, Defense of a biggest rock band in the world title belt that nobody else even wants to take from them, that those young iTunes subscribers regard with indifference bordering on outright suspicion that has been worthless since the moment a group of cornball Ned Flanders motherfuckers like you 2 claimed it in the first place. In 35 plus years, it's the most honest and revealing thing they've done, and it's hilarious. You know who else is an embarrassing dingus, egomaniacal, and stupid enough to presume messianic importance in the lives of millions of strangers? Who pops up uninvited, costumed like a revolting wing disease vector to impose his bad takes on regular people who did not ask for them? Batman! Bono is pop music Batman. He even made the theme song for the worst of the Batman movies. Superman would whip the daylights out of him, too. I think it's bad form to 
peel back the curtain when you're like making comedy and showing how the sausage is made. But in this instance, it just fits. We had so much fun, Sam and John and I, recording John doing that piece that uh, I just want to. I just want to have you guys listen to a few of these uh, blooper outtakes because they're they're just really they're really fun. Okay, here they are. Creatively bankrupt, grandiose, utterly bereft of self-awareness, calcified into a grotesque, oily wire rack in the grocery store knockoff of himself, part of you too, etc. Hang on, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> wait, this might be harder than I realized. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Shit. No, wait till you're in pace three. You're gonna, this is going to take an hour. Oh, fuck. I'm sorry. You got it. You got it. Have you read this piece before? Yeah. I, I read it from, I think, your Facebook. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm 100% fine with keeping all of this in. All right, here we go. Um, so good. All right. There sits Bono in his stupid house fly glasses playing with his dick. <laughs> Shit. So if you want to read it just one time. Through, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to. hear it come out of Yeah. I read it out loud at home, too. I'm just really having a problem with this. Dorks in full-body leotards dunk off trampolines to this song during timeouts of NBA games. <coughs> this is the hardest thing I've ever done. <coughs> this one's really funny. Neutered khaki wuss bag crap designed to make you proud of yourself for beep. With the pomp, grandiosity, and embarrassing self-seriousness of a 14-year-old Redditor. (laughs) (laughs) What's your next thing? Do we have time here? I'm really sorry. (laughs) That has been worthless since the moment a group of cornball Ned Flanders motherfuckers. Hang on. Gonna be the first reading aloud with a blooper reel. Oh, I tell you the fucking, I can't wait. Only a few more preseason games to go before the regular season kicks off, and you could start the season by winning $2 million in week one at DraftKings.com, America's favorite one week fantasy football site. I use this app way too much, I'm obsessed with it. And I really like it. It's the biggest fantasy football contest ever. $10 million in prizes are up for grabs, including $2 million for first place and $1 million for second. One-week fantasy means no season-long commitments. That's what I love. It's fantasy football on demand. Play where you want, when you want, and with the players you want. Just pick your players, pile up the points, that's a lot of peas, and pick up your cash. That's it. You've never experienced football like this. Every game feels like the playoffs. All of this is true, even in week one. And every broken tackle or a spectacular catch could take you closer to a $2 million prize. This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Welcome to the big time. Hurry to DraftKings.com now and use promo code READ to play free for a shot at $2 million in the week one millionaire maker. Free! Enter READ for a free entry now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings. I could not endorse this more. Today's sponsor is Casper Mattresses, obsessively engineered American-made mattresses at a shockingly fair price. And now you can get 50 bucks toward any mattress purchase by going to Casper.com reading and using code reading. Listen, you spend about a third of your life sleeping. Let's make sure you're doing it on a good mattress. Casper brings together two comfy technologies together for better nights and brighter days. Latex foam and memory foam. So they've got just the right sink, just the right bounce, no matter how you sleep. And they've also got a risk-free trial and return policy. They'll deliver straight to your door, and you can try it for 100 days. If you're not happy... They'll come back to your house and take it out of your house. It's a great deal. At the store, maybe you'll get a minute. Casper, 
you get to actually sleep on the thing. So it's 500 bucks for a twin-size mattress and 950 for a king-size mattress. And comparing that to industry standards, that's an outstanding price point. So get 50 bucks towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash reading and use code reading. Terms and conditions apply. Sleep better. My cat has a turkey outfit. Uh, did I send you that picture? You did send me that okay. picture. Yeah. I have a video, too. I have several videos. You do? Yeah. This is uh, We're going to do 30 to 40 minutes on cat That's outfits. Cool. If yeah. we're doing this, I have a video of my cat in his um, Native American costume. It's. A, I feel like we, we should bring them together on Thanksgiving, and your cat can hunt my <laughs> cat. Because my cat, does your cat enjoy the outfit? My cat wears it pretty casually. Yeah, same with mine. He fucking loves it. But what's weird is like your my my cat is just dressed in a dress and he is being a cat wearing a dress. Your cat is being another animal. Like your cat is yeah. inside an animal. And that's a little creepier. He is inside an animal, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the eyes of the turkey are on top of his eyes, so you're seeing both sets of eyes. It's pretty cool. So he's like half a spider. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then he uh and then he sort of waddles around in the tail, the turkey tail kind of goes back and forth. It's the most, it's the, I'm a psychopath. I need to shop. I need to spend my money in different ways. You but that's know? amazing that he puts up with it. He's, I put it out on the floor the night before and he just smelled it and then he crawled into it and slept in it. Do you do like he laid thing? on it and just rubbed his, he loved it. I think maybe the pet store put some, like, I don't know, some shit on it to like attract, what is that called? Catnip. Thank you. Or pheromones. Yeah, yeah. Or like what? Um, axe body spray. It might have been some yeah. cat bo- <laughs> cat axe body spray. Uh, yeah, he he really enjoys it. I mean, the thing I do with my cat is he doesn't get love unless he's doing something that amuses me. So he gets the most love and attention when he's in a costume or when he's on. He has a very tiny skateboard, and so when he gets on the tiny skateboard, we're just like, "Oh, you're on the skateboard!" And we just pamper him and we give him catnip and oh everybody my God. pays attention to him. So he loves the skateboard, and when you put it out, he gets on it because he knows that's where he gets love. You have a tiny skateboard. Yeah, we. I used to live with some skater dudes, so we had like several big skateboards, and those were great. And then I moved out from that place, so my grandma bought my cat a skateboard because she thought he should still have one. Oh my god! But she got him a little kid skateboard, which is actually too small because I have a really big cat. Right. So he barely fits on the kid's skateboard. He needs like a grown man skateboard. Does he move around or just stands on it? He'll stand on it. He'll go on his back legs and like get a treat. He will not pedal, but he'll let you push him back and forth across the room. Are you, and he'll stay on it when yeah. you're pushing him back and forth? For catnip, yeah. Wow. He's desperate for love. Why don't you give him love when he's just being a cat around the house? Because then he wouldn't get on a skateboard. My guest today is Amy Nicholson. She is the chief. 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 She is the chief film critic for the LA Weekly. She's the former editor-in-chief at Box Office Magazine. She's worked at the LA Times, Movie Line, LA City Beat. She screens submissions for Sundance, AFI, and the LA Film Festival, and holds a double BA in film studies and anthropology from Oklahoma, as well as a master's in professional writing at USC! You dumb idiots. <laughs> She's also an author. We'll be talking about her book today, Anatomy of an Actor, Tom Cruise. But perhaps most importantly, she is a host here on this very network. This is Synergy, people. She has a show called The Canon, which she co-hosts with Devin Faraci. You can listen to it on any media platform that you have. It's a great show. And if you like thoughtful conversations about great movies, it'll make your fucking day. Amy Nicholson. Welcome to Reading Aloud. It is so nice to be here. And I'm, thank you for calling us thoughtful. Sometimes I just feel like we're rage monsters yelling at each other and disagreeing. No. No, I think, well, you guys have such, uh, such depth. I, I'm, I, sometimes I don't like the movies that you're talking about. And so, so it's harder for me. But when you're talking about a movie that I love or that I just have a point of view about, I'm so fucking invested in that show. Like the Forrest Gump episode? I haven't listened to that one. Oh, I just thought you were the biggest Forrest Gump fan. What made you deduce that? Uh, because I ran into you that night at Bubba Gum Shrimp Company. I don't know what you're talking about. I never was there. You're thinking, you're thinking of someone else. It's cool. You're denying this. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> you wrote a book, and you talk about 10 films, 10 Tom Cruise films. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name them for our listeners. Oh, that's good. It, it used to be really hard for me to name them all in order. Oh, really? Yeah. Risky Business, Top Gun. Born on the 4th of July, Interview with a Vampire, 
Jerry Maguire. We're five through. We have five more. Eyes Wide Shut, Magnolia, War of the World, Tropic Thunder, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. What was the 11th movie that you wanted to use, but you decided, I can only do 10, so this, is, this one's going to be on the scrap pile? It was probably going to be Collateral, even though I'm not the biggest fan of that movie. Because everyone worships Collateral, and they think it's the first time that Tom Cruise has played a villain. But that's absolutely not true. He's been playing villains from the very beginning part of his career. Right, yeah. And even his very his very first major, major role uh, was in this movie Taps, where Taps, he played yeah. this guy with a machine gun yeah. who starts shooting up all these innocent people. He's so fucking badass in that He's movie. He's so badass in that movie that like, when he auditioned to, to be in Risky Business, uh, the director of Risky Business was like, Tom Cruise, that guy's a psychopath. No way. Wow, that's amazing. It's amazing. So we, I, I wanted to talk about the idea that we always think of him as a villain when that's really, or we always think of him as a good guy in that this one thing, Collateral, is like the crazy time he was a villain and how wrong we are about him because we're so wrong about Tom Cruise in every way. How, how are we wrong? How are, how is, uh, how are American movies? movie goes wrong about Tom Cruise? Well, I think when you say, describe to me the perfect Tom Cruise part, what would you say? Oh, man. Uh, well, I, I would say I would say that it's action-based. I would say mm-hmm. there are at least three fights in the movie. Um, I would say there's some w- clever, witty banter somewhere. Um, he has a young daughter with blonde hair that he saves at some point. And uh, there's, there's some love, but that's like not the heart of the story. Even though he's devastatingly handsome, I don't see him as I don't see a lot of love. Yeah. Do you really the, think he's devastatingly handsome? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you saw that guy, if a guy that looked like Tom Cruise walking down the street, you would be drawn to him. Your eye would be drawn to him, wouldn't wouldn't it? Or no? I think so too. Yeah, I'm I'm always interested in whether or not people think Tom Cruise is handsome because I he's called a sex symbol without ever being like a sex symbol. You know what I mean? It's hard to imagine Tom Cruise. You don't think he's a sex symbol? Fucking Top Gun. Well, it's weird. Like, you can kidding? you imagine like posters of Tom Cruise shirtless on people's bedrooms the way that you would see of like yeah. Channing Tatum or Brad Pitt? Totally. Really? Top Gun. But you know what's so fascinating Fucking about that? Fucking volleyball time. Forget it. You know you what's know? brilliant about Tom Cruise though? Yeah. Is uh, when he did Top Gun, he yeah. specifically told the set photographers they weren't allowed to take pictures of him the day of the volleyball match because he didn't want pictures of him playing volleyball shirtless to get out because he didn't want to be a sex symbol. Even though there were cameras with film in them <laughs> shooting a scene in a movie that was going to be seen by hundreds of millions of people. True. But a photograph, in some way, he thought at the time might last longer than a movie because this was – Top Gun was one of the very first movies to come out and make a bazillion dollars on VHS. It was a time when you just thought, oh, movies. You go right. and you see them in a room. You right. don't just take them home and freeze frame them and yeah, put yeah. them on Twitter. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Did you choose Tom Cruise? Like I, I know that this, this um, Anatomy of an Actor is a series. They have – Meryl Streep and Brando and Nicholson and all these great actors. Did you? Did they come to you and say, "Will you pick an actor?" Or did you say, "I want to do Tom Cruise"? Like, how did that? How did that work? They came to me. They sent me an email out of the blue one day, and it just said, "Hey, do you want to do a book on Tom Cruise?" And I was like, "I had never considered that question before." Did they know your background, like y- your fascination with Tom Cruise? It has come out of nowhere. I wasn't fascinated with Tom Cruise at all. It was the most random thing. Oh. Yeah. It, I became fascinated with him after they asked me to do the book. What Holy happened shit. is, yeah, I wrote a negative review, well, mixed review of a Tom Cruise movie, um, Jack Reacher, that had just come out. Okay, yeah. And I said that the problem with Tom Cruise is that he doesn't disappear into the role and that he's just Tom Cruise. And isn't that what always Tom Cruise does is he just shows up and he's Tom Cruise and he's that stereotype. He's cocky and he's confident and he has to be brought down, but he's still going to save the day. And I was just saying the same things people have said about Tom Cruise forever. Right. And and, and in a part, I was saying that because I really took that movie Jack Reacher way too seriously because I'm the hugest fan of the books. Have you read those books? No, I haven't (gasps) at all. They're amazing. Really? They're fun? They look so trashy. I was um, like seven years ago, I was dating a guy. And the first time I looked at his book collection, he had this whole wall full of Lee Child books who wrote um, Jack Reacher. Yeah. And I just made fun of him, like, what is this, some airport trash? And he was like, read one. And I read one in three hours. And then I just read all of them in the Whoa. next month. Holy shit. They're the greatest books ever. They're just these great thrillers. Okay. So smart. And the guy, I at the time, I was like, I really want a movie to be made of these. These are fantastic. Yeah. And the only actor I thought could play Jack Reacher was Michael Shannon. Because Jack Reacher has to be scary Dangerous. and tall and blonde. And he comes down a dark alley towards you and you want to get out. Yeah, yeah. And he yeah. has to be a guy with this charisma who also can look terrifying and gross right. and that he doesn't get along with people. Right. And so that's Michael Shannon. Like, that's yeah. a Michael Shannon role. Yes. 
And so that when they cast Tom Cruise, I was mad. I was just furious about it because Absolutely. I was attached to that character. So I wrote this negative review of who Tom Cruise like was and why he didn't work in that movie, even though I think he tried hard. Did you say that in the review that you were biased because you had such a passion for this um, for this series? Oh, you know, I don't remember. That was an old movie land review. I should find out. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, they th- this this publishing company reached out to you. They're f- in France. They're in France. Okay, yeah. and they said we want you to write a book and follow the series about Tom Cruise. Yeah. So I thought I would be writing a book that was a lot like that review, where I was going to be like, Tom Cruise. He doesn't really act. He just shows up. He's Tom Cruise. How did this guy get so famous and popular? Right. And then I went back and really watched all those movies looking to see what he was doing in each performance for real, like really looking at them yeah, and not just buying into that whole, well, that's what Tom Cruise does. He shows up and he's cocky. And I realized really fast that I'm a moron and I'm totally wrong. And that every time I thought Tom Cruise was being like the cocky guy, he's doing something completely different. He's trying to subvert that image we have of him in every film and nobody ever gives him credit for it. And then I started to realize that he's a fantastic actor and then I was just like, why are we all so wrong about him? So the book became this yeah. analyzation of his career in terms of how has he become so famous and yet we don't understand anything he's doing inside his films and we remember them wrong is what fascinates me. This is a, just a brief clip from your book. Anatomy of an Actor Tom Cruise tracks the superstar's smartest and most perilous choices, the roles that could have derailed his career but instead defined it. It's a study of craft and calculation of Hollywood's most powerful underdog still chasing the respect he's more than earned. I want to be able to look back and say I've pushed it as far as I could, said Cruz. I've made some damn big mistakes, and I look like an asshole a lot of the time. But I did some good stuff, too. Isn't that sweet? It's... (laughs) (laughs) Your heart breaks for the guy. What a wonderful realization to make, to, to to see... A guy that everyone assumes they know the whole story on. That you went back and you were able to discover a completely new actor almost. You get to watch these movies in a different way. It was really fascinating. I, I You think of a movie like Top... like top. Uh, I'm saying Top Tail. What is that? Like Top, top Gun? Tail. Top Tail was top one tails. of his you know, forgotten hits. Top Gun or Cocktail, you think of those movies and you get these really iconic images in your head because yes. these were big deals. You think of... Tom Cruise flipping bottles and being awesome in a beach, or you think of Tom Cruise flying planes, and you're like, oh, that's what that movie was about, is about Tom Cruise being awesome. Right. Then when you go and watch the movies, they're not about that at all. Your Cocktail is a, a movie about a guy who can't get a break in the today's economy, is forced to be a bartender because he's failing out of night school because he can't, or he's failing out of school because he can't even support himself. Nobody will give him a shot. Right. And then all he wants to do is make money, and he knocks up a girl, and is really a horrible person and his best friend commits suicide. Like, it's a dark movie. It is not Tom Holy Cruise flipping bottles on a beach. Wow. And the same thing with Top Gun. His best friend dies. Yeah, yeah. He's torn with all of this guilt because his um, his father disappeared over a boat. Oh, oh like, well, his father disappeared while he was flying his own mission. So he comes into this Top Gun Air Force with something to prove about who he is. And it's kind of a drama more than an action film. Mm, he doesn't yeah. punch anybody. He doesn't do anything wild and crazy there's not a lot of action action there's a lot of him in a cockpit but there's not a lot of action it's really this drama about a guy trying to find his place in this competitive dog eat dog world represented by Val Kilmer right yeah yeah yeah. this is an enormous question and maybe impossible to answer but why like why is film special why is why is film so important to us and to our culture you know one thing I'm gonna say is that I like how crass film is in terms of why it's made I, I, I think critics, there's a tendency, I feel, when you're a new critic to think that only serious critics talk about independent films and that, like, serious critics shouldn't mm. talk about blockbusters. Right. That what's important to the film world is, like, these tiny little things and these French films and, like, the classics and, like, right. this idea of, you know, what art is. And what interests me about film is the crass side is that, like, big blockbusters are being made. Uh, for hundreds of millions of dollars, and the people making them want to think, what do a hundred million Americans want to see? And they need a hundred Americans, a hundred million Americans, to want to see Transformers Four. Right. So they're going to figure out what they should put in Transformers Four that will make everybody want to see it. So it's this really big scale of them trying to think about what we want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes they're wrong, and that's fascinating. Like when they get what we want wrong. Right. So these blockbusters have so much more to talk about in a way 
then I love talking about little films too. I love finding them and highlighting them and being like, watch this. Sure. But there's a side of my brain that loves analyzing what mistakes. The Avengers, for, like the first Avengers. Exactly. How the fuck did that come together and how did they decide what is going to feed American audiences? Exactly. Well, audiences worldwide, I guess. Yeah, and now that it's becoming worldwide, now it feels like what I'm doing is really looking at the economy on such a large scale, like Transformers 4, they put in all this Chinese product placement, which was the first time I'd ever seen that. Yeah. A film that we would have just assumed was made for Americans 10 years ago, now where the characters are drinking Chinese waters. And you think, oh, we don't matter anymore. Like, this is now product placement Whoa. for other countries. And the director, Michael Bay, doesn't even care if Americans can A, read what that says, or B, would buy it. Right. It's not about us anymore. And that's huge. Like, when I saw that, my jaw just hit the floor because you think, this is a film telling us where America ranks now. Wow. Do you, did you remember, do you remember when you decided that you wanted to be, that you wanted to be, that you wanted to get into criticism? Yeah, it was my senior year because I didn't take a criticism, like, newspaper weekly, here's the film of the week criticism that yeah. seriously as a kid. Because in San Antonio, our film critic rated things by chili peppers. And so I thought film critics were just sort of jokes. Like film <laughs> critics was what you did when you failed out of academia because I was going to be serious and I was going to get a doctorate and I was right. going to write these books that nobody would ever read. You know, I was right. going to be that person. Right. And then my um, right before my senior year, a couple of things happened that summer. Uh, one of them was that my laptop got stolen, which had all of my essays I was going to use to apply to grad school while I was still in college. Wow. And I was just taking easy classes that first fall semester because I was going to finish up my anthropology degree and um, apply for schools. So I wasn't taking intensive film writing classes. And I was like, what am I going to do for samples? And I started to panic because uh, I lost everything that I had had. And then September 11th happened and I thought, well, we're not going like, to live anymore anyways. There's going to be a huge war and everyone I know is going to get drafted. I mean, that September 11th yeah. happened right when I would be applying for grad schools for mm -hmm. the next year. Mm -hmm. Made me think, why don't I just do something – Direct, And then I realized that if you are a film critic, what you get to do is you get to talk about film with people who care about film every week mm. and that you actually get to be involved in a conversation that was happening. And all of a sudden, really quick, I was like, why do I even want to go to grad school? I want to be – I want to write every week and be topical. So where did you go? Did you stay? In, in school? Yeah. Like where? Did, like after school, like how did – where did you oh, yeah. like move to to like begin your career as a – or did you stay – Oh, no, I lucked out because um, I was the only kid in my class in Oklahoma who wanted to be a film critic. So a film critic came to town to give a writing award away, not to me, to somebody else. Uh, and his name was Gerald Perry, and he wrote for the Boston Phoenix. He still does. He was great. Mm. And the head of my department put us together for lunch. He said, hey, you should meet this girl, the only weirdo girl who wants to be a film critic. Yeah. And so I remember this lunch, and I remember that we got into a big fight over the movie Amelie because he loved it and I hated it. Uh-huh. And um, he went back to Boston, and then he he knew that the paper I wanted to work for was the LA Weekly, because I wanted to be in LA, and I would come to I would visit LA with my friends. Wow! And I would read the LA Weekly because I loved the way they wrote. They're just like flippant and fun yeah, yeah, and yeah. smart. They're like the smartest jerks in the room. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I would take LA Weeklies and read them in the car on the but way not, back. But not not the Village Voice, LA Weekly. LA Weekly. Huh? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. knew I wanted to be where the weather was nice. Okay, gotcha. Right. And all my Oklahoma friends came to L.A., and I liked that it. it was a place we could come, and you'd have backyards, and it felt like replicating Oklahoma out mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. And so he got me um, an internship at the L.A. Weekly. Whoa. How yeah. old were you? Like, was it right out of school? It was right out of school. So I graduated in May, and then uh, I moved out here July 1st. So I celebrate July 1st every year, and started at the weekly July 2nd. Wow. So Holy Gerald shit. Perry changed my life. I've sent him a lot of thank you letters yeah, over yeah. the years. Uh, and R.I.P. the Boston Phoenix, which no longer exists, unfortunately. Yeah. What he, is, he, is he running for something else now? He is, and he was doing a little bit of acting. He was in a movie a couple years ago. I forget which one it was, but I saw him, and I was like, Gerald. Whoa. Yeah. Like a movie shot in Boston? I think or something else? so. Oh, I wish I could remember now. I'm blanking huh. on it. But we were, I was very excited. Good for him. Good for him. He's, is that anything that you have an interest in? Oh, no. I'm not photogenic, but yeah. Uh, yeah you don't want to be in front of the camera. Mm -mm. There's this idea that all film critics are either like wannabe directors or actresses, and oh, at least not over here. No, not for you. Not for me at all. Uh. -uh. Okay. Um, do you have any of your first reviews? Like, do you, do you, are those on your computer somewhere? Like, like the ones that you wrote when you were first starting out? Yeah, I recently I recently went and found one and saved it because I wanted to to remember it forever. The first review mm. I wrote, 
in in college, right when I started wanting to be a film critic, was for Nicolas Cage's Wind Talkers. Oh yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, and I, I remember that one really. Like a Native American, like World War Two sort of, mm-hmm. right? Or is it yeah. Vietnam? World War Two. Uh, World War Two. I yeah. think so. World War Two. Yeah. I remember that because I I I struggled so long on finding a lead because it was my first review ever, and I knew it was going to be one I was taking around for samples later. Mm. And I decided to find out what. Um, I can't remember, but I just remember that I started my review off with the word Bilnehe, which was like Navajo for something. And I think it meant Navajo for like terrible. I forget. But I was like, Bilnehe is the Navajo world for terrible. And that is what this movie is. And I thought I was the cleverest person on the planet. (laughs) That's pretty clever. That's a good start. Yeah. But I go back and I read that now and I was really mean. Like, I think I said Nicolas Cage looks like a pork chop, which is something I would never do now. Because now, now I realize there's no need to be cruel. Do you, do you, does that pop in your brain when you're typing a review? Like, I could fucking eviscerate this person, but I'm not <laughs> going to. I'm going to pull it back. Is that something you have to constantly check yourself? I think you have to make me really mad to make me really mad. Like, now I don't want to just be – I don't want to take a pot shot when you didn't do anything bad. Like if it's a okay. film that has horrible attitudes towards women, I will yeah. let you have it. Right. But if you're just an actor, For instance, and I, would, I wouldn't make fun of your face. When was the last time that a, a, a movie – that you the f- credits rolled and you had fucking fists? Oh, man. Uh, I Well – this wasn't horrible to women, but this week I did see Hitman 50 or 47, and I just walked out of there being like, oh, you make violence look cheap, you look, you make death look cheap, you make yeah. heroism look evil, and you don't even know what you're doing. Like, it's really reprehensible. I, ha- I hate movies that have... Yeah. I'm okay with violence. I like violent movies, but I, I hate movies with a cheap attitude towards death. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. makes me mad. Is there uh, are there times when you wish you could just like turn off the critic brain and just watch, or maybe you maybe you have that skill where you can just watch a movie and not have you know the critical part of your brain on? Can you do that? No, but yeah. uh, but I but I do like watching movies in different settings, not for work. Like I like going to the drive-in out here. I've never been. <gasps> Oh, the drive-in's great. I've never been. I've never been to a drive-in, period. I'm 37 years old. Oh, my God. The Mission Tiki is like an hour away, and they have carne asada fries. An hour away? And you can bring a beer. It's a long drive. Uh, Yeah, it's a long drive, but it's a double feature for seven bucks. So you make up in gas money uh, what you would for the cost of the movie. You're seeing two new releases for like three fifty each. Old releases? New. A new releases? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we went a couple weeks ago, and we saw Vacation and Trainwreck for seven bucks. I saw Trainwreck last night. Oh, what would you think? I laughed my ass off. I thought it was great. I mean, classic yeah. Apatow. He just can't fucking. There were four scenes in that movie which are unnecessary. It should have been, a, you know, twenty minutes shorter. But he just doesn't have a producer going. Nope, Judd. No, <laughs> no. And well, P. Like T. Anderson a, has like the same thing. Like he's a beagle. Yeah, exactly. Just like no, don't eat that. Put it, <laughs> put it down. Put it down. And I feel like P. T. Anderson's the same way. Like he because they ha- they've reached this status, they have no one to say no. Or Christopher Nolan. Oh, God. Go Ugh. fucking drown yourself. Ah, I hate... Oh, God. I could get really fucking mad about... Perfect. Christopher Nolan is the perfect example of that. Interstellar. I was so fucking mad oh, at that movie. I got so... I mean, I guess I shouldn't have gone in expecting anything. Uh, but, oh, I was so fucking angry. And that last Batman... Oh, Holy yeah. moly! What are you doing? The whole Matthew Modine stuff and the oh good lord, that was at ninety minutes too long. Why these people just don't have producers? There's there's like no studio head who has the fucking balls to say no. Fucking knock it off. That's the thing. I, I respect in a way that Warner Brothers is willing to give Christopher Nolan hundreds of a millions billion, of dollars yeah. to do whatever he wants. That's cool. But he but needs somebody on the inside saying, yeah, you know what would have made Inception really good. Besides your crazy worldview, is if you actually had a story or like characters yeah, who spoke like yeah. human beings. Oh, that fucking movie's a piece of shit. Thank I fucking you. hate that movie. That's the thing. Genius Christopher Nolan is, is a fucking yeah. hack. He's such a memento. Great, congratulations. Memento's great. But I'm sorry, those Batman movies to me are almost unwatchable. I was in a movie theater, the second Batman movie. I think it's the second Batman movie with uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal when she's like tied up to all the the explosives and he's like on the phone with her. And I'm sitting in a movie theater and there he, she's having that like tearful conversation on the phone like it's okay Bruce and the person behind me just goes 
<laughs> like the biggest fucking yawn I've ever heard. And the entire theater is like, Woo-hoo! Like, exactly. We all feel the same way. It was like, and it didn't happen in Los Angeles or New York. It happened in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. And I don't even know if this guy was doing it on purpose, but it doesn't matter because it just like sums up that entire movie. Yeah, Christopher Nolan can go walk and take all your films and walk into the ocean. I don't, I'm, I don't get it. I don't get it. Let's talk about books because this is a podcast about books. I always save books for the end, but you have a pile of books in front of you. I do. Do you have um, favorite movie related, like movie industry or like Hollywood memoir uh, books that you sort of love that you're drawn to? Yeah, I brought a couple. What do you have there? Um, The first one I brought is called The Spectator by Suds Terkel. Okay, yes. You mentioned this in the email. I've never even heard of it. Oh, have you heard of Suds Terkel? Yes. He's one Working. of my heroes. Working is one of the best books. It's one of the best books ever. Yeah, I mean, for people who don't know Sud Turkle, he was almost like the pre-podcaster. He did mm. and mm. he did a radio show for over 40 years in Chicago where he five days a week interviewed people. And he on his show interviewed a lot of famous people. He interviewed everybody. He interviewed like Zero Mostel and Woody Allen before Woody Allen made his first movie. Like he interviewed everyone. Mm. But when he wasn't doing that, he was also interviewing just local people, like elevator operators, people who sold flowers at markets. Everyone, and he had just reams. I imagine his library of his own interviews that he had done taking up like a whole bus station. Like, yeah. He did nothing but interview people, and then he broke all his interviews apart into books. And so he would interview one person, you know, a random person who grew up in the South, whatever, moved to Chicago, was a shoeshine boy, um, about their whole life, like whether they were in the war, whether they, you know, how they felt about attitudes towards race, like how they felt about you know, the American dream, and then he would break these books apart into things called like the American dream or ones about war or ones about um, youth or ones about race. And he would take those little quotes out and just assemble these books about what every American thought about this topic from all ranges of life, famous and non-famous. Yeah. So to me, that's the most important thing that's ever been done in the last century. Amazing documentarian. He's covered everything. The entire human, the entire American experience. He's the guy. Yeah. He's, he's, he's the guy that hopefully if we are alive and like, 10,000 years, if his books exist, that will be the greatest record of our time. Yeah. But this book called The Spectator is one he did that's all about art. Okay. And so these are all interviews with more or less famous people. There's, um, you know, Francois Truffaut was in here and Fellini and Pauline Kael is in here. Mm. Buster Keaton is in here. And it's also interviews with like costume designers, playwrights, like drama critics that people didn't know about, hmm. all just talking about art from different points of view and just wow. little segments that let you into their heads. Wow. There's a bit where Buster Keaton is talking about how he found out the hard way who can get a pie in the face and who can't. Like wow. if you put a pie in the face of this person, they will – like if you put the pie in the face of like a pompous old-looking rich lady in a movie, the audience will cheer. If you put the pie in the face of a normal-looking old lady, they will hate you. Right, yeah. And just – so it's, it's – ch- Yeah. That's it's crazy. Yeah. Pauline yeah. Kalen here goes on this whole thing about what she hates about stereotypes in war movies and how she loathes movies of World War II that made Germans and Japanese just look like – dumb savages that you're free to murder Yeah, and how she needed more out of her war films. And then she like brings that thought up into the Vietnam War and traces how then when Vietnam happened, we wanted films that made the Americans look like idiots. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so everything in here is just a fascinating story about Hollywood or about art or about craft wow. from every angle you didn't even think you could, you didn't even notice it to ask. Yeah. Studs Terkel, and what is it called? The Spectator. The Spectator. I love this book. Amazing. That sounds great. And then I brought my favorite Hollywood memoir. Okay. Uh, this is Esther Williams, The Million Dollar Mermaid. Never even heard of it. Okay. Do you know Esther Williams? Or do you know that suit? I'm, I'm showing him a picture of the cover. Does a swimsuit like that look familiar? No. Okay. Uh, I will tell you everything you want to know about vintage swimwear. <laughs> <laughs> is that one of your things? Do you like vintage? Do you go on Etsy or eBay and buy vintage bathing suits? Yeah, well, they don't fit me. I'm kind of flat-chested, so vintage swimsuits have these cones, and they make me look weird, and they, like, sink. And then you're just like, why am I dented? And it doesn't it doesn't work. But um, Esther Williams actually has her own line of swimmer. She died in 2003, uh, 13, but she has a line called the Esther Williams of Swimwear Collection. Whoa. And they're all, like, old swimsuits in her, in her style, and they're Fun. amazing. I have Fun. a couple. Cool. But she was one of Hollywood's biggest stars in the 1950s. She did the swimming musicals for MGM. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's like little clips you probably Busby have in the back Berkeley of your brain. Busby Berkeley kind of stuff, or like exactly, yeah. yeah, where she'd be in a pool and there'd be a hundred women circling yeah. her, and Kicking she was on a thing, and she jumped off the platform in this gold suit, 
And what this book talks about is in that thing, in this Busby Berkeley movie, where she jumps off a 50-foot platform in a gold suit with a tiny crown sewn to the top of it. Uh-huh. The crown hits the water, and she breaks her neck. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So this is her memoir of, hey, I did all these beauty. She lives, and she's not paralyzed. Right. Um, but this is her memoir of, I did all these weirdly famous movies, and now I'm old, and I don't care. I will tell you every bit of gossip I ever heard. Whoa. Who was a crossdresser. All of the bad husbands I chose who, like, beat me up and took my money. Like, everything that Hollywood did to screw with me. But it's also just lovely and funny. And it's this— That sounds awesome. It's so amazing. I have given this book to women after breakups because it's this book where she's just like, yeah, I dated this guy. She dated um, Fernando Lamas, Lorenzo Lamas' dad. She married him. They were together for years. He made her quit acting. He made her—he was so controlling that she just had to give up her entire life to be with him. And um, and they stayed, I think, until he died. It's just this book of, like, overcoming men who ruin your life. Yeah, holy shit. But at the same time, looking at all of these interesting angles of Hollywood you didn't know existed, because she was a huge box office draw yeah. for for, for uh, years. Wow. And I love Busby Berkeley films. So anything yeah. that talks about how he got made, I'm interested in They're really in fun. It. Yeah. I, I saw my first when I was, like, a sophomore in college, and was like, oh, my God, I can't believe that this existed. This is American? Holy shit. They're so amazing. Yeah, I, I just bought last week um, on Amazon, they have a DVD box set of only the dance scenes. So I just oh my God. bought that because I just want to sit on my couch and drink, like, a bullet rye on the rocks and yep. watch that for an entire night. Yeah, totally. That's a cool Thursday night. The best Thursday night ever. Uh, so this is Esther Williams, and the name of the book is? The Million Dollar Mermaid. That's the name of one of her famous movies. Okay, fantastic. I'm going to finish on an impossible question. What's your favorite movie? Ooh, I have two. Can I say two? Yeah. Okay. You're cheating, but sure. Okay. They're just tied, and I love them for Great. the same. Okay. Um, <laughs> my first favorite movie is Pennies from Heaven with Steve Martin. Never seen it. It's amazing. It's a musical. Whoa. It's it's the it's Steve Martin's follow up to The Jerk, and everybody hated it because they wanted him to make The Jerk too. Sure. And he does instead a movie about the Great Depression, that's a musical. Yeah. And it is fantastic. He okay. plays a music salesman, a music um, who like goes to door selling things like Life Is But a Bowl of Cherries to people. The sheet music of it, and he's a louse. He wants to cheat on his wife. He wants the world to reward him for what he is he wants the world to be like it is in a movie or in in the songs he wants to he feels like he deserves more than he gets in the great depression so what he does is he goes inside his own head when he hears music and he fantasizes about what the world should be and so the movie works in his musical numbers like that so he say he meets bernadette peters who's a woman he wants to have an affair with he goes in his head and he has this beautiful dance number in his head about what they're doing and their costumes change they're they're beautiful they're done by bob mackie and they start dancing, and then he's always shaken back to reality, and it's so sad. It's this movie about fantasy and how it doesn't last. Mm. And yet, as it goes on, Steve Martin does so many horrible things you can't really even forgive him in his pursuit of a magical life. Wow. It's devastating. I think wow. it's one of the greatest movies that's ever been made. Pennies from Heaven. Pennies from Heaven. And it okay. has one of my favorite things, which is an actor in a musical who dances – and the camera pulls back, shows you him dancing, his whole body dancing, and he's not the best dancer. And it doesn't matter because it's yeah. about wanting to do something yeah. and not about doing it perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if it just cut to a better dancer and his feet and pretended it was Steve Martin, the whole effect would be ruined. Totally. Wow. How cool. So I love that. That's a movie I need to watch. You should watch it. Okay. And then my other one, maybe you've seen Tonight to Key, New York. With wow. With Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Yep. That's my other favorite movie. Wow. Holy cow. I guess it's I'm me, surprised to hear common. that. Really? Why? I, 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 I didn't like it. I just oh, found it no. so, um, yeah, I found it so alienating. I, I didn't, I wasn't, I felt like I, he had his hand up the whole time and, and I had to jump through too many hoops. I was like, you have to help. You can't just make a movie for, I mean, this is the essence of the movie, but you need, there's an audience here. You have to yeah. be mindful of them. I feel like he wasn't mindful of the audience. Oh, maybe if you watched it a second time, you would uh, yeah. like it. Because yeah, okay. it's hard to watch the first time when you're trying to figure it out. And then the second time when you can get into the emotions of it, mm-hmm. I cried like a baby the second time I watched it Shit, for the whole okay. last act. I think there's also a teeny tiny part of me that's jealous because I auditioned for that movie. Oh, who do you want to play? Um, one of the actors in the company. Oh, um, really? I forget what the character's name was. But very, very small, small. Like when he was rehearsing in the beginning. Um my buddy is actually in that. Paul, Paul Sparks. Do you know the actor Paul Sparks? He was in uh, Boardwalk Empire a bunch. Um, Boardwalk Empire? I've never seen yes. that. I hear it's really good, and I should because okay. I love Michael Shannon. Oh, God, yeah. Then yeah. you'll be way into it. He was in the first season, I think parts of the second season. But um, 
But yeah, I just, I don't know. It was, but that's amazing that, that you were so drawn to that movie. I don't let myself watch it more than once every three years because I don't want it to lose its impact. Wow, how yeah. smart. Whoa. It's beautiful. I should have done that with Annie Hall when I first saw it in college. I just fell in love with it and I just wanted to watch it every day. Do you have was, it all memorized? Yeah, pretty much. I can do like any line in that movie. Yeah. That's so good. What's your favorite line? Um, uh, when he's like with, uh, what's her name at the at the Alice, or Bob Dylan concert. He says, um, she says, uh, do you like Dylan? And, he's, and he says, uh, or did you see? Oh, did you see the stones or something? And he says, um, "No, no, I, I couldn't go. My uh, my uh, raccoon had hepatitis." And she says, uh, "You have a raccoon?" And he goes, "A few." And I just really, <laughs> I just really made me laugh. That that's the joke that I a few. It's really funny. Amy Nicholson has been my guest today. She has given you listeners some serious recommendations to check out in film. And in books. So why don't you say thank you? Say thank you to Amy. That's it. Where can my listeners find you on the internet? Um, you can find me at the LA Weekly. So I'm there. Yep. And uh, on Twitter at the Amy Nicholson. The Amy Nicholson. The There's already an Amy Nicholson, and she gets, she lives in Scotland. She seems very nice on Twitter. Okay. She's in the at Amy Nicholson, and she gets a lot of my hate mail. So I feel bad for her. Oh, poor thing. Poor thing. Amy Nicholson is one of the best voices right now critiquing film, and you should check her out immediately. Listen to her podcast that she co-hosts with Devin Faraci called The Canon. It's right here on the Wolf Pop Network. Amy, thank you so much for coming, and this thank was an you. awesome chat. This was super fun. Yeah, let's do, let's do it again. Deal. Would you classify yourself as a geek, gamer, or pop culture nerd? then Loot Crate is the subscription box for you. Loot Crate is a subscription box service with $40 plus worth of geek, gamer, and pop culture gear, collectibles, apparel, comics, etc., delivered to your mailbox every month. Make sure to head to lootcrate.com slash Nate and enter code Nate to save three bucks on any new subscription. Every month, there's a different theme, which are all inspired by classic movie and video game releases, as well as pulling from pop culture franchises. Previous crates have included items from Star Wars, Marvel, The Walking Dead, Legend of Zelda, many more. Call forth some hard-hitting companions and get ready to summon an epic loot crate. They're celebrating all the monsters you can fit in your pocket and the ones you need some crazy circle-drawing skills to bring to the mortal realm. This month's crate features an exclusive collectible that they're told is the most important object in pretty much the whole universe, plus awesome items from Blizzard, Kid Robot, and more. Basically, Loot Crate is like a friend who knows what you love and just surprises you every month with an awesome present. Did we mention that we shipped to over 13 different countries too? Yeah. So you have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. When the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So... Go to Loot Crate, L-O-O-T-C-R-A-T-E dot com slash Nate and enter code Nate to save three bucks on your new subscription today. Enormous thanks to the lovely Amy Nicholson for coming in and chatting with me about her book and her career and movies we like and we don't like. Uh, she's the best. And check out The Canon. It's one of the best shows on the Wolfpot Network. It's such a good show. Her and Devin Faraci do an amazing job. And if you like movies, that's a show to listen to. So definitely, definitely check that out. It's called The Canon. Amy, you're the best. Thanks. And big thanks as well to John Ross Bowie for reading Albert Bernaco's Truly I Say to You Today That Bono Is an Asswipe. You can find it on The Concourse. Go to theconcourse.deadspin.com and search Bono Asswipe and it'll come up. This piece is so brilliant. This guy is a spectacular writer. There is not a piece of fat on this thing. It is just so good. So, um, Big thanks to Albert for giving me the okay to have Bowie read that on the air. So thank you. Uh, and thank you for listening. Go get some books, will you? You got to get All the Things We Cannot See. And then you have to get Jonathan Franzen's Purity. Read those and be a part of this online book club. My name is Nate Cordry. You're listening to Reading Aloud. And you're also listening to Possessed by Paul James. This is a great song. It's called Hurricane. Possessed by Paul James is coming to L.A. very soon. I'll give you more info on that later in the month thanks so much for listening and we'll see you in two weeks with a book club it's been reading aloud goodbye oh!
Hey, I'm Stephen Dubner. I'm James Altucher. We both make podcasts. I do one called Freakonomics Radio. And I do one called The James Altucher Show. Very uh, cunning name there. Yes, I'm, um, I admit my narcissism. We've been podcasting a while, but we've never podcasted together. And that's what today represents is the beginning of our first joint project called... Question of the Day. It's not a good name, Question of the Day. It's going to sound kind of like this. What words do you think the English language needs? What words or expressions are missing? What can you teach me now in the next 10 minutes that will be useful for the rest of my life? What is the best way to start an engaging conversation with a stranger? Has your memory suffered when you were in your late 40s? Can't remember back to the late 40s. <laughs> are we recording? I don't know, but shouldn't waste good conversation. Yeah, yeah, no, let's on we're, just conversation. We're, we're each episode is going to be about 10 minutes long. But 10 of the most action-packed minutes you've ever heard in podcasting. It's a very fortified podcast. It's fortified, kind of like a one-a-day vitamin, kind of like question of the day podcast vitamin. So if you're short on time, but long on curiosity, you don't want to miss it. You can find us at Earwolf.com and iTunes. Or your favorite podcasting app. Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.